Good morning, Dollar Baptist Church. All righty, as you've heard my name many times already, my name is Joseph. I'm the student pastor here at Dollar Baptist Church. Uh, if you're a guest, welcome. We are so glad you're here. The stage looks a lot different, doesn't it? A lot different than what it usually is. This is how we had it set up for the whole weekend, and man, this band resonate. Aren't they amazing? Let's give them a round of applause real quick. Thank you guys for being here to serve us. Seriously, thank you. Um, they're, they're an amazing band. Uh, they come from different churches all over Montgomery, and they, came, they come together, and their desire is to serve the local church. So they were serving us this weekend for Amplify. It was amazing. Uh, I want to say also, on top of what Tommy said earlier, a couple, a few, multiple thank yous, actually, to some specific people. To all those who served meals this weekend, thank you so much. Thank you so much. To Ms. Martha Thigpen uh, for opening up your home for our girls this weekend, thank you so much for doing that to my wife for allowing the boys to be in our house this weekend. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And then uh, definitely to uh, Miss Stephanie for being here, Miss Marlene for working in the hospitality room, Uh, for Miss Amanda as well for being here to clean last night. So many different people all over the place. And then definitely our two Amplify leaders, Anna and Connor, thank you two so much for leading our students. Y'all were amazing. All righty. So as you've already heard, this weekend's theme was no filter. And our topic was identity. And specifically, personal identity. Who are we in Christ? Who are we apart from Christ? Uh, Our speaker, Larry Heitch, who is the state board missionary over the men's ministry over the entire state, he was our speaker. He did a phenomenal job. He preached through Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 the whole weekend. Um, He talked about our identity in the natural self, who we are apart from Christ, dead in sin, children of wrath. You know, that's who we are without Christ. And he looked at that in verse 1 through 5. Then, yesterday morning in our second session, he looked at who we are in Christ. We're alive, right? We are forgiven. We are now children of God. That's who we are. And last night, he closed it up with our identity in the kingdom. Now that we know who we are, how are we to live? We are his workmanship created for good works. So to close up this weekend, this discussion on identity, I thought it was important to touch on one other aspect that is often overlooked in the American slash West church, and that is corporate identity. This weekend, we looked a lot at personal identity. Who am I, right? Who am I? But often we don't ask ourselves, who are we? Who are we as the church? This is a quote I got from a commentary. It says, in the West, self-definition typically begins with I statements. But in some cultures, it starts with we statements that establish a person's town, family, and guild. And this was especially true of the Christians in the first century. They were we people, not I people. They saw their identity as in groups, that they had corporate identity. So when discussing identity, rather than asking the question, who am I, let us ask this morning, who are we? Not to say that one is more important than the other or one is less important than the other. The two are interconnected. They're two sides of the same coin. We cannot forget one without the other. And I came to this topic on corporate identity because of the following text after verses 1 to 10 in chapter 2 of Ephesians. It says this, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both, Jew and Gentile, one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Both Jew and Gentile are made into one people 
one new man as assessed, by the blood of Christ. The cross has made us one, one church. So today we will be diving into one of my favorite texts in the Bible. And it gives us a clear definition of the identity of the church. Who are we? And I want to also let you know, this corporate identity applies to both the universal church, all Christians everywhere, and the local church, us this morning, Dowry the Baptist Church. So if you will, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. And if you would, please stand as we read these two verses. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. Read with me. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Pray with me. Father, thank you so much for your word, God. I thank you so much for the opportunity to be up here, God. I am humbled and honored to be up here um, after hearing such an incredible speaker this past week. And God, I know that I am not enough for this morning, God. I don't have enough strength. I don't have enough energy after this weekend, God. I need your strength, your power, your words this morning. God, hide me, God. Let your words come forth. And I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. So to give a little bit of context and background behind 1 Peter, 1 Peter was written by Peter, the apostle, and he was writing to what is called in the beginning of the book, the elect exiles or the exiles of the dispersion. They were Christians throughout Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey now. Okay, so they were primarily Gentiles, you and me, right? They were not Jews primarily. There were some Jews reading this, but primarily they were Gentiles. And this is important. I wanted to just lay that down. So what we're going to do is we're going to answer four questions this morning. We're going to answer what is our identity who are we? What is the purpose in our identity? What is the reality behind our identity? And then on what basis can God, the holy and just judge, pardon a guilty people? Those are the four questions we're going to look at from this text this morning. So first, let's look at identity. And we're going to see, we see it clearly laid out in the first part of verse nine. Read again with me. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. The first thing I want you to notice is the first two letters, but you. <clears throat> Before we dive into this amazing list, I need you to understand what those two words are teaching us there. Those two words are very important. So the but is significant. Peter is creating a sharp contrast between the people of God and those who are not. That is what he is doing, because in the previous verse, in 7 and 8, it says this. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. So these unbelievers have rejected the stone, Christ Jesus. He is a stumbling stone to them. The gospel message has not convicted them, but hardened them. They love their sin. So this but is creating a sharp contrast between God's people and those who are not in God's people. That's what we need to understand here. But then the you is also important because the you here is plural. So in essence, Paul is saying, but y'all. That's what he's saying. He's saying, but y'all. He's not talking to just you individually. He's talking to all of us, all the Christians, but y'all are. But y'all, 
He is talking to all of us corporately, universally, all Christians everywhere, and that applies to us here this morning. So, each Christian individually can say they belong to these descriptions, but I think it's important for each of us to take a moment and think about our identity in relation to the whole of Christ's bride, the church. So let's do that this morning. So let's look at the first one. But y'all, but you, are a chosen race. The church is God's chosen ones. This is the same terminology used of Old Testament Israel. Deuteronomy 10, 15. Yet the Lord set his heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. Isaiah 43, 20. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give waters in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, desert to give drink to my chosen people. So this language is the same language used of Old Testament Israel. We are God's chosen ones. And chosen here is an adjective describing race. Hold up, race. Ooh, that's a super hot topic today, isn't it? Race. We don't like to talk about that very much. So how can Peter call a bunch of Gentile Christians who come from multiple different races and ethnicities, one chosen race. How can he do that? Is Peter being inconsiderate? Is he being rude? Is he saying there are no distinctions between how people look or where they come from? Not at all. So now no to all those answers. Peter is saying that now ethnic or racial lineage has nothing to do with whether you are part of the church or not. And this is good news for us, is it not? Gentiles, because before it was for the Jews. Now it's for everyone. That's good news for us, right? That's, that's good news to these Gentile believers who are suffering. You are part of the chosen race, right? You are part of us. It doesn't matter what you look like or how you talk, right? You are with us now. You are part of God's people. Peter is teaching us that there are two races spiritually, the ones in Adam and the ones born in Christ, those who are born still in their sinful nature and those who are born again. Peter has already touched on this earlier in 1 Peter 1.3. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, <laughs> living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The church is one race chosen by God. Your past history does not disqualify you. Your heritage does not disqualify you. Your skin color does not disqualify you. Your socioeconomic status does not disqualify you. All kinds of people are now one kind of people. God's chosen race. This is who we are, Dowry Baptist Church. So let's make sure that we are reflecting this reality to whoever walks in our doors every Sunday. If they act different than us, if they look different than us, if they have a way worse past than we do. In Christ, we are one race, and it doesn't matter with those things. We need to welcome them. Let us be that. Let us be the one chosen race. So who are we? We are a chosen race. And two, we're a royal priesthood. So, so far, Peter has already informed this. He's already told the Gentiles this in 1 Peter 2, 5. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. So he's already told them this, but he adds something to it. But I want to remind you that priests are direct servants and worshipers of God in his temple. They are a group of individuals set apart for holy service to God. Now... We see that all Christians are priests of God. All Christians are. We see here the priesthood of all believers in Christ. Dowell Rated Baptist Church has been set apart to be a priesthood. 
a group of individuals working alongside one another to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. And what kind of sacrifices are those? Praise. We did that this morning. Praise. Doing good to our neighbor. Giving. Being charitable. All these things are sacrifices to God. We see that clearly. Even in Philippians, what I've been preaching through with our students. When the Philippians gave Paul a gift, he calls it a a sacrifice. He says it here. He says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Our praise, our doing good to others, our charitableness, our generosity is a sacrifice, and we are offering it up as priests to our God. But the priest that Peter describes here seems a little different than the Levitical priests of the Old Testament. Actually, it's a lot different. A royal priesthood, a royal one, a holy servant of God who exercises rule. Where does this sound familiar? Well, the first one we see in the Bible is the king priest Melchizedek. I don't know if you've heard that name before. Melchizedek is a character from Genesis chapter 14. I'm going to read it real quick. In the story of Abraham. Abraham has just gotten back from rescuing his nephew Lot. And then this is what happens. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. His name literally means king of righteousness. And he was also the king of Salem. Salem means peace. King of righteousness, king of peace. And he is a priest of God most high. And then later in Psalm 110.4, we see a prophecy about one who was going to come in the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110.4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. According to Hebrews, Christ is the royal high priest in the priesthood of Melchizedek. Now, all then who are united to Christ are brought into Christ's priesthood and are not only servants, priests, but fellow rulers and heirs. That's who we are now in Christ. Jesus is king and all his house belong to a royal house. That is who we are. So then, We are priests of Christ, living in service to God, yet with all the benefits of royalty alongside our King Jesus. That's who we are. And we see this clearly in Revelation. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed the people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, the chosen race, right? And you have made them a kingdom and priests to God. They are, we are priests continually forever, and they shall reign on the earth. That's what it says there at the end of it, and they shall reign on the earth. Royal priesthood. Who are you, church? You're a royal priesthood. That's who we are together. So then we have three. We're a holy nation. But you are a holy nation. Again, this language here is very, very similar to the Old Testament Israel language. Deuteronomy 7, 6, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. 
Holy here is an adjective describing their distinctiveness, their separateness from the rest of the world. They are to be different, set apart, not like others. Israel was to be a nation set apart from everyone else, all the pagans in the world. Now we see Peter applying the same language to the new covenant community, the church. We, the church, are a holy nation called to be set apart from all other nations. The church may not be recognized as a formal nation state according to the world standards. The church may not be a part of NATO. We may not ever be seen as a nation by the world. And that's okay because God sees us that way. God has identified us in that way. He has made us a holy nation set apart from all world powers and countries. If we, the church, ever find ourselves reflecting other nations of the world, we should change immediately. The church is not identified by world values or even our own American identity or any other national identity in the history of the world. Nations will rise and fall, but God's nation, his church, will stand forever. Matthew 16, 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We are an eternal nation that will never go away. That's who you are. Every nation has leadership. The holy nation of God, the holy nation of God has Christ as its king. He is our Lord. He sets us apart. He directs us, and he leads us. So who are we, church? We're a holy nation. And then finally, we are a people for God's own possession. For God's own possession. This is just beautiful. The identification with people reminds us again that we are a born-again race and one nation under Christ's rule. But he adds a description to it, a people for God's own possession. This is the same exact language used in the Old Testament again. Exodus 19.5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. Deuteronomy 7.6. Again, for you are a people holy to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. For his possession, that phrase tells us two things. One, we're owned by God. We are a people owned by God. And two, we are a people treasured by God. When you possess something, that object is yours, correct? So when, you, when, um, when something you possess is for yourself, it is because that brings you pleasure. When you possess something for yourself, it's for your joy, for your pleasure. So the church is owned by God and it is treasured by God. In any other circumstance, if we were to say that someone owned us, we'd consider that a negative thing, right? We don't like to be owned. But when a loving and sovereign God owns us, this should bring us comfort. And why is that? Well, the first question from a, a Christian uh, catechism, which is just question and answers, it's known as the New City Catechism, answers this question well. And the very first question says, what is our only hope in life and death? And the answer is that we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. God's ownership of my body and my soul in this life and the next is my only comfort and hope in this life. I am not my own, praise God. Because if I was, I would be left to myself in my sin and my weaknesses. This is how God sees his church. Our only hope is that God has made us as one new people his treasured possession. 
So who are we, church? We are a people for God's own possession. That is who we are. But now that we've answered the question, what is our identity? Who are we? We are going to ask a follow-up question. For what purpose? Why? What is the purpose that God has made us into these things? This is who we are, but why? Well, we keep reading. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That word that there means in order that. So again, it's telling us here's the purpose, here's why, right? And again, that you is plural, referring to all of us, right? So this is showing us not only our corporate identity, but our corporate purpose, right? So what is that purpose? It is to glorify God by proclamation. It is to glorify God by proclamation. And so here's the first thing we learned about this word proclaim. It's a very interesting word as I've studied it. This word proclaim tells us a lot about the target, the audience of our proclamation. There are many words in the New Testament that mean preach or proclaim or deliver a message, right? And so in this group of proclaim here, this family of words, when we usually when we proclaim it's as a message to a single person or to a group, like we're delivering a message, like the angels came down and they'd give a message to Mary, right? They proclaimed the message. But this is a little bit different. It is not that word. This word means to announce broadly or to make known openly with wide distribution. To announce broadly or to make known openly with wide distribution. So we are not purposed to just deliver the message to a single person or to a single group. God is purposing us to proclaim him, to make him known among all peoples and amongst all different kinds of people. Open, wide distribution. Not just the people you're comfortable with or that look like you or that act like you. All peoples of all nations. That's who we're called to proclaim to. Everyone. Because that's the identity of the church, right? We just talked about that. That's who we're proclaiming to. But what are we proclaiming about? It's proclamation about God and redemption. Proclamation about God and redemption. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Excellencies, that word, means God's virtuous character. So it's all of God's attributes that display his morality, his moral perfection, his love, his mercy, his compassion, his patience, his justice, his wrath. All those morally perfect, virtuous attributes of God, those are the excellencies. God is excellent. That's who he is. All that he is, he shines. So, by rescuing an undeserving people, God has redeemed a people who were once in darkness, spiritual blindness, and depravity. He has displaying his excellencies and his virtuous character to a people that are undeserving of it. And that's us, you and I. We were the ones in darkness, right? And so that is how, that is what we are proclaiming to all people. God showed mercy to me. God loved me when I did not deserve it. Isn't he great? Look at how amazing his character is and how awesome he is. That's what we're showing off. Not just the path, 
but the person, right? We want to show the path, but the person of God, who he is in his nature, that's what we're showing off. That's what we're proclaiming when we preach the gospel to people. Showing off God, look how great he is. How excellent and perfect and beautiful our God is. That is our purpose, church. The purpose behind our identity is that we widely proclaim to everyone the virtuous character of God and how he saves sinners through Christ. Are we as a church, corporately and individually, accomplishing this purpose? This is a question we need to ask ourselves. So, we've seen our identity. We've seen the purpose behind that identity. And now I want to look at the reality behind that identity. The reality behind that identity. So let's read that last part of verse 9 again in the verse 10. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The reality is that the identity we have been given and the purpose alongside that were at one point not ours to begin with. That's the reality. That did not belong to us at one point. That identity and that purpose was not ours. Especially for these Gentile believers, that's for, they, would, they would see that really. They would, they would understand that and grasp that. This is, this is for us now. It's new to us, right? So, let us always be reminded of this reality. Because our natural inclination is boasting in ourselves. That is our natural pull is to boast, look at me, look at my identity. I'm a chosen race by God. I'm awesome, right? Like, that's our, I get to glorify God. Like, it's just it's boasting oneself. But we need to remind ourselves of the reality that at one point, that was not us. We were not given that purpose. It did not belong to us. But now it has, so let that humble us and lead us to proper worship. And he describes this reality in three different ways. First, we see it at the end of verse nine when he says that we were called out of darkness into his marvelous light. At one point, we were in darkness, spiritual blindness and depravity, no hope, no, we couldn't see anything. But now he has brought us into his light where there is spiritual sight, we can see clearly, and we are transformed in his light. That's who we are now. That's the reality. But not just that, when we go to verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once we were alone, we did not have a God. God was not our God at one point. We were alone, away from him, but he brought us into his family. That is what he did once alone, but now in God's people. And then finally, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So if we're not receiving mercy, then what are we receiving from God? Judgment. Justice. That's what we deserve so if we're not receiving mercy, we're receiving his justice, which is something we should not want, right? That is not for ourselves. I don't want God's justice on my life. I'm a wicked sinner. I, am, I need his mercy, right? But for all of us as a church, at one point, we were not receiving his mercy, right? Especially these Gentile believers, they were seeing that, but now they haven't shown mercy. At one point, they were awaiting judgment from God for their sin, which they justly deserved, which we justly deserve but God has shown mercy upon them and has forgiven them. So that's the reality. Let that humble us and lead us to proper worship. Let us never boast in ourselves, 
but always boasting God due to that reality. And then finally, the basis of that, we deserve judgment. On what basis can God, who is a just and holy judge, forgive and show mercy to guilty criminals like you and me? On what basis can he do that? God is just. That is who he is. He can never not be just. He must always punish sin and evil because he's good. Imagine if this were a courtroom and I were the judge up here, right? And an awful criminal comes in, a murderer, murdered a whole family, something atrocious, awful. And he comes in and he goes, I am just so sorry, judge. Please forgive me, I'll never do it again. And I've already been like, you're good, just go on ahead. And the family of those who were murdered in here, the anger that they would have, because that was wrong for me to not put justice on that person. I would not be a good judge then. We need good judges, and God is a good judge. So on what basis can he forgive and show mercy to us who don't deserve it at all? We should be condemned. We should be, the sentence should be delivered upon us. So on what basis? It's the cross. That is the basis. I had to go off to another text to find this, but in Colossians 1, 13 through 14, it talks about this darkness, and it says this. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, which we just talked about a second ago, right? Verse nine, here's the thing. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In Christ, we have forgiveness. In Christ, we have redemption of sins. Why? Because he absorbed God's wrath on the cross. We love to talk about God's love being shown on the cross, and it most certainly was. The cross was a picture of God's love and affection towards guilty sinners, but it was also a picture of God's hatred and justice and wrath towards our nasty sin. It's both at the same time. So on what basis? The cross had to happen. God had to punish our sin, and he did it on his son. That's good news for us, church. That is the basis on why we are who we are. That is the basis of why we are a chosen race, why we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's treasured possession, why we have been given such a great purpose to go and proclaim his great virtuous character to all the world and to point them to the one who can save them because we have been forgiven through the cross. Let us never forget the cross. There is no salvation without the cross. There is no mercy without the cross. We need it. Don't, and I wanna just give a little solemn warning to you. Be careful about praying for God's justice on your own life because he may just answer it. Look at Nadab and Abihu or Uzzah, or the two people, I forgot their names in the New Testament, these people that were God's justice just, bang. That's the t- God is a terrifying God. He is a powerful God, but he's also merciful, and he showed that through the cross. That is the basis for him being able to show mercy upon those who are awaiting justice, awaiting judgment from him. That's who we are. But now, if you are in Christ individually, if you have been born again by God, if you have repented and trusted in the Savior, you have been brought into a new spiritual race. You are chosen by God. You are a royal priesthood. You are ruling with him, and you are serving him as a worshiper. 
Set apart from the world, you are set apart nation. We are a people, a nation with our King, Jesus Christ. And God, has, God owns us, which should bring us comfort. And he treasures us because he cares for us. And we have been given a purpose to go and make him known. So, our identity, who are we? Let us ask ourselves that. Let us think about us corporately, not just individually. We need to do that too. But let us not forget that we are one people and that what we do, we do together. Who we are, we are together. The reality behind our identity is the same. All of us were in darkness at one point. All of us were awaiting judgment, right? All of us were alone and didn't have God's family, right? And the basis is for all of us. All of us and that are in Christ, our sins were forgiven. God's justice was put on Christ in our place. So let us not forget these truths and let us leave here being who God has made us to get, be, living out the purpose that he has given us, all the while knowing the reality behind it on the basis of the cross. Pray with me. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for this corporate identity that you've given us in Christ Jesus, that we are one people, that we are one in Christ no matter what we look like, what our background is, we are all one people in Christ, one chosen race, one royal priesthood, one holy nation, one people for God's own possession, with one purpose to make you known, that we've all come from the same place. Darkness, loneliness, waiting judgment. But Christ, you sent him, your son God, Jesus. And because of the cross, we are one. Let us never forget that and let us leave here fulfilling the purpose that you have given us as one people. And I pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen.